Welcome to the Forger Podcast, where I talk with cottage food entrepreneurs about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I'm talking with Robert and Paula Gross. But real quick, I wanted to check. Have you created a website for your business yet? And if you have, do you pay for it? A lot of entrepreneurs still think they need to spend money to get a good website, and that is simply not true anymore. I am a really big fan of Square Online. That's what I use for my Fudge Business's website, and I created a free tutorial that will walk you through how to set up a totally free website in less than one hour. And in case you think free also means cheap, it's actually quite the opposite. I think Square Online is hands down the very best website tool for most cottage food businesses. So if you want to learn more, you can watch my free tutorial by going to forger.com slash website. All right, so I have Robert and Paula on the show today. They live in Murray, Kentucky and sell jams and jellies with their cottage food business, Whiskey Ridge Farm. When they started their farm in 2015, they planned to sell microgreens and other produce, but after a couple of years, they learned that their value-added products like jams, jellies, and pickled items were both more popular and profitable. After a few years of significant growth, in 2021, Robert and Paula finally decided to take the leap and go full-time with their business. But then a few months later, the ag department told them they could no longer sell pickled products, wiping out a huge part of their business. But they adapted and have made their business work on jams and jellies alone, while also investing a huge amount of time, effort, and money into building a certified manufacturing facility on their property that will finally be ready to use later this year. There aren't too many people that have scaled a homemade jam and jelly business like Robert and Paula have, and this episode is packed with tons of insights they've learned from their unique business journey. And with that, let's jump right into this episode. Welcome to the show, Robert and Paula. Nice to have you here. Well, thanks for having us. We appreciate it. All right. Can you take me back to when this whole journey got started for you guys? Yes. Um, we used to sell vegetables and plants at the farmer's market. Robert was really great at growing things. And then we used to also supplement and buy vegetables at the Amish auction. And Robert called me at work one day and said the wheel on our truck literally came off and he wasn't able to go get vegetables. And I had promised the people at the farmer's market that we would be there that next morning. So I swung by the store, got nectarines, limes, came home, stayed up till 3.30 in the morning making jam. So I made nectarine, lime, watermelon, and watermelon lime jam. And I already had a roasted red pepper ketchup that we had. And I got up at five that next morning and went to the market. And I made as much money that day as we'd made all the other weeks. And I didn't have to come home and process fruit and vegetables. And I came home and told my husband, we're done selling fruit and vegetables. We're going to start making jams. And that's how we got started with like 40 jars. And what year was this? At 2018, I think we're starting our fifth year now. But we had been going to the farmer's market maybe three years before that. We actually started out because I have a love for hydroponics. And I tried to do hydroponic herbs as kind of a side hustle. And it went over like a lead balloon here in Western Kentucky. So <laughs> so that, that's kept our journey. But we liked the social aspect of the farmer's market. It's pretty fun. When did you guys uh, start the farm? 2015, I think, right after we moved here from California. We had bigger vision for it. I thought, like I said, I love hydroponics and, and I just thought it would be fun to have 
you know, uh, sell bib lettuce and, and hydroponic strawberries and things like that. And we actually built a greenhouse and did all that kind of stuff, but it just, it was a different marketplace. The, the Southern marketplace is a lot different than what we had in the Western coast. And it, it was one of those things. It just was, we were working way too hard for too little money. So it just was one of those things that we just thought, well, we, we know where we can get inexpensive vegetables and started making relationships with people that actually grew it. And then we're reselling it for a while. Like I said, just to get started. And he was doing microgreens and people just were not understanding it. Where now microgreens are really big up in Paducah and, and they're starting to pop up in uh, Murray here. And then we also had a lot of animals. We had a lot of we had chickens and goats and sheep and all of that. And we sold our eggs. We had big plans, but we got sucked into the jams and jellies. And, and that consumes most of our time now, that's for sure. So you started actually selling the jams in 2018, and that, I believe, was the year that Kentucky got their cottage food law initiated. Was that just a coincidence, or did you actually know about those laws and started selling because of that? We knew about it. Uh, I saw it coming. There was a, the lady that started the laws here or helped get it pushed through. I think she was actually from Missouri and was frustrated that the Kentucky state laws were so heavy-handed and and they're still pretty heavy-handed as you know when you compare it to like a Tennessee or a Montana or something like that but yeah that allowed us and we were one of the first ones to apply we did the jams and jellies the first week on a whim and then uh, you know immediately applied and got the licensing and at that time all it was was an informational thing where you, you know, no fees and things like that and you could do anything within the state of Kentucky even ship in the state of Kentucky at that time. And, and things have changed a little bit now, but the nice thing is, is there's no oversight or really any licensing here other than just a now an annual fee that allows you to make your stuff from your house. So I know you do jams and jellies and you do a few other things on top of that. Um, what exactly do you sell? Not in terms of what else you sell, but also in terms of what flavors you sell. We do seasonings as well. We do dried seasonings. Um, I tease Robert because he loves to bring out hotter and hotter stuff, but he can barely eat above a bell pepper. So we do a lot of like ghost pepper seasonings and uh, habanero seasoning. Smoked jalapeno is our newest one that came out. We were doing pickles until we found out we were not allowed to do pickles unless we're a federal food manufacturer. And we've been working a year and a half on getting that licensing. But we do quite a variety of flavors. We probably have 35, 40 flavors right now on our product line. And uh, we continue to bring out more as we can. It's kind of cool because we try to make new things when customers give us ideas or things will pop in our head or we'll trip across some beautiful fruit and we'll be able to turn it into something. And then sometimes we're just trying to play catch up on just trying to keep enough, you know, apple butter or apple pie bourbon or jumble berry. Those are some of our top ones, you know, trying to keep up with our big sellers. But really looking forward to getting our pickled products back. When things started rolling in the jam business, we actually sat there and, and I go, honey, we need to come up with a new flavor every single week for the farmer's market. And she just about fell over because at that time she was working a full-time job. I was, you know, making money in my ways. And we're like, how are we going to do this every week? But it was one of the one or two things that we did that were just absolutely instrumental in our business because people would bring us ideas as to things that they'd want that maybe they grew up with or they haven't seen in a long time. And then we do the research and come out with it for a while. And then the other thing too is, is you know, like going to NASCAR, you want to see the wreck in turn four. They would always stop by the farmer's market to see what we came up with this week, you know, and just, just to say hi and, and see what it was and sample what's, what we did. So, And sampling's key. <laughs> Sampling is definitely key. So what are some of the most unique flavors that you've come up with so far? Well, today we're making purple whole pea jelly. 
and that's made with the outside of the holes that you throw out in the in the compost. In fact, last year we made it because um, someone told us several years ago they had it at their wedding as a wedding favor. And I thought, I've never even heard of this. And my farmer called me last year twice saying, let me make sure I'm understanding you wanting the part that I'm throwing in my compost. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I want. And we already had five or six requests just this year alone saying, please bring that back. We've done prickly pear. Someone here in Kentucky actually had them growing in their yard. Um, our number one seller is apple pie bourbon. We've made so many different kinds. Yeah. Frosted carrot cake is one of my, I call it happy in a jar because everyone that ever tries it goes, oh my gosh, that is so good. The one that this last weekend was the big one is we did a corn cob jelly. It's those kind of weird things. I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff. Strawberry margarita. That's a huge seller. People love that one. Strawberry lemonade. And we really try to do a punch of big flavor in there. So when we say it's going to have strawberry lemonade, it is definitely going to have lemon because I do lemon juice, lemon zest. I try not to do anything muted. And we do them lower sugar for the bulk of our product line. So we really try to make sure you get that fruit flavor first because we don't want to be known as just one that puts a ton of sugar and stuff. Well, the tricky thing with canned goods, especially if you're going low sugar, right, is safety. I know you guys are hyper conscious about safety. So you're having these recipes tested it's not required by the state of the cottage food. And, and you said low sugar and low sugar is a no-no. We can go lower sugar. So what we try to you know express to people is that I try to, within the guidelines of the state, get as much fruit in the jars as we possibly can, because that's where the flavor is. Now, you also said that you have alcohol in some of these jams. Are there any licensing requirements for that? I want to tell this story, Paula. Yeah, I know. I'll let you <laughs> so, tell this one. So, so here's the thing. We went out to a show in uh, Aurora, and they got rid of their blue laws, so they were legal to do alcohol. Well, we had somebody report us to the state of Kentucky for any food product with alcohol in it. So, of course, we were extremely nervous. The state, instead of looking at the complaint, they actually forwarded on to alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Now, do you know what it's like to get a call from the ATF saying that you can't make moonshine in jam jars? (laughs) So I spent probably two weeks reading studies about it, talked with the different people there and in food products, including cottage foods. Now, this is Kentucky. California may be completely different. We always thought the limit was 1% alcohol. So 1%, you know, we're always below that, but that was my mental limit. Well, came back from them and talking to the head of the Department of Agriculture here in Kentucky. And he says, no, Robert, I I got off the phone with the ATF. You can go up to 5% in food products. I went, 5% is beer. He's like, yep, it is. So you can do that. And I said, and you're sure that it's legal here with what, what we're doing? And I'm like, he's like, absolutely. So every time someone gets worried about alcohol and foods, it's like, we've gone as far as you can possibly go. (laughs) So, Well, and we don't put alcohol in there just to put alcohol in there. We really do use it for the flavor in there. Like I do a pina colada jam and it's beautiful on top of an English muffin or even on ribs. But we did one without the alcohol and it barely sold. And and that kind of leads into something else too. This week, we'll do four farmer's markets. But at the farmer's markets, you see the same five or 600 peoples every week, okay? One, it, it allows you to make a relationship with them. But like for our apple pie bourbon, e- even if you, someone will say it's a gimmick, well, it's the same people that are coming and buying it the second, the third, and the 500th time. So it must be a good product, you know what I mean? And, and it's extremely important for farmer's markets or areas where you're going to see people over and over and over again that you have a high quality product, even if you have have to charge a premium for it. Otherwise, if you have a, a marginal or a low end product, you're just you're not going to succeed, I don't think. 
So what percentage would you say of your customers at the markets are recurring? Depends on the market. So my market is much more locals and I have a much more relational. I do have visitors that come, but again, they're usually tied to somebody that lives here. And we have here in Murray, Kentucky, we are probably the biggest market in probably five or six counties. Robert's market is very different. He's up in Paducah, much, much bigger city, but his is probably, we're guessing, his is 50% tourists. So our sales are very different in that respect. So his is more transactional and mine are more relational. I see a lot of the same people every week come back. That is just different. And then same with, with the other two markets that we do. Those are still building, so they're a lot smaller. We jokingly say with our family, they all help us out here in the first few weeks because when we open up for the farmer's market in May, it's almost like working at a grocery store. The, the customers know what they want. They know what they like. They, as long as we have it in stock, they're going to buy it. And it's, it's literally like working as a checkout clerk. But if we go to, like if I go to Paducah and I have someone who has never even heard of me before, I have to go through and explain to them why my product is better than what they might get locally or why it's different. And that's where the sampling and the sampling the products really, really comes in is because when they have that doubt, then I can put them in, in their mouth and they're like, oh my gosh, that's the best X, Y, or Z that I've ever had. And that builds the customer base. And then that helps your sales and your revenue per sale too. Robert, at the beginning, you mentioned that you thought that selling microgreens or selling produce was going to be more lucrative than it was, but it was going to be a lot of work and not enough profit. Actually, that's sort of what I often think of when I think of a jam and jelly business, right? It's a ton of work. (laughs) It's a lot of work. And for a lot of people, not a whole lot of profit, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of business. So can you just talk a little bit about how you've made this work, like with pricing or or just the financials? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we started and we did 40 jars our first week, okay? And for for the first two years, my wife had a full-time job and I was doing stuff on the side, just, you know, doing whatever we do. And we were able to go every weekend. And we went from 40 jars to like last week, I think we did almost 400 jars in a week. It takes a while, you know, it's like rolling a rock uphill. You got to get over the crest before it starts to take off. This is basically what, you know, somebody told me, or I read about it, basically 30% of whatever you sell your product for, 35%, of, let's just say a third, 33% is the cost of your goods. So whatever we put into the goods, the jars, the fruit, the sugar, the whatever it happens to be needs to be about a third of what you do. Then a third is the cost of marketing. So it, it's the cost of driving to the show. It's the show fees. It's the shirts that I have to buy that says, you know, grab your balls. It's canning time, whatever it happens to be to go and pit up that show or do the tents and things like that. And then on the other one, hopefully you, wa- you walk home with about a third on the backside. Um, in the beginning, making 30 or 40 jars was a, a lot of work, you know, and, and it is a lot of work for anyone that's ever canned before. But like my wife, I think last week, didn't you do over 200 jars just by yourself? We did 800 jars in four days. Yeah. So I have to do things like labeling and chasing shows and things like that. And and she does most of the cooking. So given that, it's it's about scalability too. So, you know. um, He now buys the jars by a pallet. So he's able to get it cheaper. But I will tell you, quite honestly, we live very, very lean. We don't have a lot of extravagance on that. And so we take as little from the business as we can in order for us to keep going. And we try to dump it back into the business. But he has been excellent at finding like, 
our kitchen is concrete with stainless steel. Just about every single piece inside there, except for one, is used. And he's found them and done amazing work on building that kitchen out with a very limited budget. Yeah. Now we have a set amount we take out of the business every week because we got bills to pay too, just like everybody else. But what I see a lot of new people doing that get into cottage food is they have a great weekend and they think that they just they had a great weekend so I can take a bunch of money out of the business. And that's not how it works. You know, we'll take 500 bucks out a week or whatever for what happens to be. And if we have a great weekend, we might take a little bit more. But generally, even if we have a monster weekend, like we go to barbecue on the river or we're going to the state fair where we'll do a thousand jars, you know, in three or four days, that's a lot of canning. Yeah, you get a big old check, but you know what? 50% goes right back into the business on day one. And I sit down like today on Monday and figure out, okay, what do I need to do to stay ahead of the things we need to do? Do I need to buy pectin or do I need to buy lids or do I need to chase fruit today or whatever it happens to be? So I definitely agree that your goal in most any food business to get your ingredients to be about 30% of your price. But tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people who are starting out a jam or jelly business, they're not anywhere near 30% when they buy their fruit. Yeah, no, you're right, because you're starting at smaller limits. If you start building relationships with different farmers, and sometimes when you go up to scale like what we do, you're able to start getting them at lower prices. There's some things I've just told customers flat out, I can't make right now because I can't get that fruit at a good enough price. Like cherries, we haven't sold a cherry product in two years because I can't pay five to $6 a pound and put that in a jar. I just can't. There's just no way. And I've been very honest with my customers. I'm not going to give you a garbage product. I'm not going to go out and change my recipe in order to you know, fit the module. I'd rather just not bring that product out at this moment in time because I want to keep my quality up. So just recently, a local guy called me and he is selling me his blackberries, but it's at a price that I can put in a jar. And it's a price that makes him happy because last year he threw out half of his harvest. So I agree with you. The home canners, it's harder. Or if you're just starting out, it's harder. So I would recommend if somebody is just getting started in this business, look for a fruit that you can get at a cheaper price. Check around and see if there's somebody local. Go on Facebook or Instagram or whatever and say, does anybody locally have this kind like pears? That's a, a fruit that I usually have to tell people, no, I got plenty of. There's a perfect example of this too. For example, during COVID, pineapples were extremely hard to get. Um, we could get them fresh, but they didn't taste right to us. So we started looking at frozen alternatives. And, and I know that sounds a little bit like cheating, but we were finally able to find a flash frozen Hawaiian organic that tasted really good. And, you know, it's organic, so we're paying through the nose for it, but I know I've got a good product. And I think, you know, garbage in, garbage out, good stuff in, good stuff out. I think that matters. You know, there are certain things as we get bigger, and this is, you know, for those considering, you know, making it a full-time job, it's really hard to get enough strawberries from a local guy. You know, I used to be able to have three guys that would grow jalapenos for me and they'd bring me 10 pounds and we'd be able to work it out. Now, you know, we're, we're processing, like we just got a hundred pounds on Saturday. From a local farmer. From a local farmer, because we, we fostered that relationship long-term. So yes, I agree with you. But even when we first started, I believe our cost was somewhere between 40 and 45%. Um, my wife calls me cheap sometimes. I'm never cheap with my, my fruit or my ingredients. But when it comes to things like labeling or jars, things like that, I go, okay, that's a good price. But then what? 
So I'm able to buy jars by the pallet because I made phone calls and I can go and I can spend five or $600 on a pallet of jars, drive down to Memphis, pick them up, bring them back. And that saves me a significant amount. I'll save 30% on this, on the price of my jars. And that helps get my price point where it needs to be because if you want to go to the next level, you're going to want to be in stores and stores have to make money too, which means your margins have to be right. So while we're on the topic of jars, can we talk about the pandemic a little bit? That was hard. We called it the jarpocalypse. <laughs> so. We were very blessed. We even told customers, like, we can't find jars right now. And we were struggling trying to fill some of them. And so we actually had customers bring me jars that they would find in their cabinets. And so I, of course, sterilize them. One of the cool things that we also did, uh, even before the customers really started digging in and buying stuff when they when see it on sale and stuff for us, is we pay 50 cents a jar for any return jar. So they'll bring me jars that I can can in and we'll go ahead and wash them and sterilize them and then recycle them through the, the system. Oh, Paula, what about the one that we got a call from a friend of ours? Yeah, we got a call from a friend of ours. And um, when we got there, it was this huge facility full of jars that were probably 10 years old and they were filled. So we ended up buying the whole collection. It probably was three or 400 jars worth. Oh gosh, it might've been two or 3,000. I don't know. It was a lot. I don't, it was just so much. We spent weeks sterilizing, you know, washing them, running them through with Clorox and then, you know, running them through our, our, our big sterilizing thing. But that helped us too. Almost everything's made in China now. And during the pandemic, because shipping rates that, you know, and everybody was staying home, China had its own things. And then in the U.S., like where I get my jars now that are American made, they couldn't have enough staff to run the stuff. So they could only do certain things. The home canner on the glass market is the last one that they're going to take care of. But what I've told people in the past is that the heat of the market is July and August for canning supplies. And the retailers know that, and they will mark up the prices on it when you get it locally. Um, I always tell people, if you really are a canner or want to make this as a business, you need to be looking at October and April to buy as much as you can to get you through the season, because that's going to be difficult to get the glass. So we haven't talked yet about like what, what do you actually price your products at now? So our four ounce jars is now $4 and we had to go up on our eight ounce jars. Those are now $8. We used to do a jar that we got that was like about 11 ounces that used to be $10, but we had to eliminate that sizing. And that's another thing with jars that they eliminated that jar actually. So we've gone just to the standard four ounce, eight ounce. And then hopefully when we bring our pickles back out, we'll have those in pint size jars. And I'm guessing we'll do that at eight or $9 a, a pint. The interesting thing, you know, about the pricing too, everybody thinks that there's a magic price, but it's not about price because if you're fighting about price, then your product's not good enough. I'm never going to be able to beat Smuckers ever. And if someone needs directions to Walmart to go get cheaper jelly, I'll, I'll show you how to get there. But ours is a premium product. And like, especially for those that are listening that are thinking about getting into cottage foods. There is no magic number that you can do. We have three or four bakers at our markets. Everything is different because the product is different. And people try to think that, okay, if I just go from five to 475, that'll increase my sales by X. No, it won't. It really, really won't. You need to have a good product that has value. And that's the thing. If you try to sell a low quality made from juice out of Walmart kind of jelly that tastes kind of bad for $8, you're not going to win ever. Just make sure that you make stuff that you like, you give it high quality, and then you just price your time accordingly, no matter what. 
So you said you'd sell the four ounce jars for $4, the eight ounce jars for $8, but not all fruit is equal, right? Some fruit's more expensive than other fruit, and also some fruit is harder to process. So are you really pricing all of your jars exactly the same regardless? Yes. And part of it is it, it's hard to keep up with different pricing for different jars. I mean, maybe someday we'll have to go to that. But again, I also won't make something if it's outside of my guidelines to know that I can't, I'm going to lose money on it. Like we just brought back out, Nectarine Lime Jam was one of the first jams I made. It was the first jam we made to, to start the business. I just made it last week. And when Robert looked at how many jars I made, he said, wow, that's one of the most expensive jams we're making right now because it's, it's lower in sugar, a lot of hand processing. And same with our Merlot jelly. We don't make that one right now because it's so expensive to get the Merlot that we utilize. So yeah, we do do pricing all the way across the, because it's just easier for our customers too. We one time brought out black raspberry and that one we did price a dollar higher on the large jars. I only made it in large jars because it was so much more expensive, but it was one of those where we knew we would never see black raspberries again. And our customers understood that. There are certain markets that will sometimes get pushback, but I just tell them, I'm sorry, this is the price that it is. I do a premium product and I understand everybody has a different budget. And if they're going to really push you on it, that's when you just go, I'm very sorry. I wish you well, you know, with whatever you purchase <laughs> and let them roll on because you're not going to please everybody and your product's not going to be for everybody. The, the trade-off is this, like in the farmer's markets, because that's where we, we do probably 80% of our sales through the year is at farmer's markets. There is a crunch time usually between 9 and 10.30, where, as, and especially Paula all by herself, she's just crushed. When you're trying to sample and sell and all that kind of stuff, when you have 30 or 35 different products, knowing the pricing, setting out all the price tags, having it all correct... It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. So, you know, there are certain things like a strawberry or even apple pie bourbon. Apple pie bourbon, yes, it's got bourbon in it. And bourbon is not cheap. You know, we we spend hundreds of dollars every month on on alcohol that goes right up the, the, the chimney. But what we find is apples are relatively inexpensive. So as a net net, it tends to come in. And I think apple pie bourbon for me is about 32%. But there's other things like the blackberries. The blackberries, I'm closer to 40%. But I would rather have that product, ride that horse as long as I can to get the customers that really, really love it so that they come back next time, like I said, with the NASCAR and the turn four to see what else is new that I can make it work. Uh, Oh, there's nothing. Peaches. There was a freeze in the South this year it took out probably 90% of the peach crop. We'd drive down to Alabama or South Carolina and actually physically go to the farm and drive them back. I can't do this this year. So our peach products, we tried some of them. They were not great peaches. So we made peach butter, Uh, but I won't do my peach bourbon or peach preserves or things like that. So that is where I'm really kind of a stickler for quality. It's just not going to work and I'm not going to buy slop and I'm, I'm not going to go down to Walmart, you know, because that kind of stuff is terrible and, and we're big enough. We can't do that anyway. But but still, it's really important that you focus on, buy, on doing the things that you like to do and that you get high quality fruit, because if you try to fake it, your customers will they'll they'll find out, especially when you got farmers markets and they're coming back next week. So can you give me a sense for like what the low end costs would be for buying fruit from the store versus what you're getting directly from farmers and buying in bulk? So I bought 100 pounds of jalapenos and they were 90 cents a pound is what I paid my farmer asked for. But he is selling them at the markets for $2.50 a pound. 
normally farmers will sell to you at whatever they would sell their wholesale price to. So if you can make a relationship with someone, normally they'll do that because they'd like to see it go to you instead of going to, you know, a Kroger or Walmart where it'll show up on the shelves in a couple of weeks. To give you an idea, anything that we have to get, let's say, for example, mangoes, mangoes are not in Kentucky. I have to get them off a truck. I'm basically paying the same that you would buy a mango at Walmart or, or Kroger. So we don't save any real money that way. But when we have the gentleman in, in Mayfield that calls us and says, you know, I'm going to have 300 pounds of blackberries, you know, I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll pay you $2.50 a pound for that. No problem. All day long. But then, like I said, with apples, apples are more like a dollar a pound. You know, raspberries are like $6 a pound. Cherries are 7 or $8 a pound. And I, I can't make the math work on that kind of stuff when you know you have half to three quarters of a pound of fruit in a jar after you process it and skin it and do all that kind of stuff. But like we will, we'll buy like plums do not grow locally here in Kentucky. So when we can find them at a certain price, and, and I just know in my mind, Robert and I've talked about it, that if the price is, the, is a certain amount, I know I can go ahead and buy them because I know it's going to fit in our model. Otherwise, if it's over that, I just got to roll on. It reminded me of we happened to actually be shopping at our local grocery store and they had quince there. And quince are like oranges, but for the Mediterranean. Okay. They're really thick skinned uh, and, and they're very popular in Europe. Well, he couldn't sell them. He was selling them for five. I think it was $2.50 a quince. I said, I, I can't put that in a jar. And he said, what price would put him in a jar for you? And so I said, a lot lower than that. And so he popped back 50 cents a quince and I said, I'll buy them all. And so I took every single one of them that he had, plus what was in the back, because they'd been sitting there for a week and a half and he hadn't sold a single one of them. He said, sometimes you just got to ask. And I've done that where I walked up to a farmer and said, hey, look, I'm really interested in your, uh, your habaneros. And not only am I interested in, I'm interested in every single one that you have. Would you give me a different price if I bought every single one on this table? And they say, absolutely, because they want to get rid of them. They don't want to go home with habaneros. They're going to be picking more next week. So it's obviously a unique business model because there's a lot of seasonality to it. You're dealing with different fruits and produce across the year. But what about, you know, from a consumer side, do you see seasonality there where like, what are your high seasons? What are your low seasons? So we, um, in my little silo store that we have, because sometimes we don't have markets during like November and December. I mean, we do, but they're kind of hit and miss. So we sell a lot out of there right during the holiday season. And so we'll see customers coming through, especially like the week before Thanksgiving, the week before Christmas, they'll start coming out. So we do see a high point in that. Of course, in the middle of summer, we find that our markets are very, very busy. Some of them start in March, but most of them start about April, May. We're busy all the way up until right about now. And then they start dropping down because people aren't as excited about going to the market. They've been going for a month or two. And then they start picking back up September, October, because now they're excited about pumpkins and fall and so you kind of have a slowdown during the middle of July and August. And then again, you pick back up before the holiday season because people are excited about buying stuff for the family. We travel, you know, because we do this for a living now and have now for just about two years exactly. And during the off season, apparently the electric bill has to be paid every single month. And so we, we have to chase shows in bigger towns that are inside because we don't have a farmer's market to go to. So we'll go to Louisville or Lexington or, or, you know, shows that are in convention centers and stuff like that and be able to sell there. Like if we can get them to sample the product in a town that they don't even know of, you know, off season, then we can sell enough to do it. But we're just treading water in the wintertime and the early spring. We do pretty good uh, the first 10 or 12 weeks of a farmer's market. And then like Paula said, it's a, it's a slow slide until the fall. 
And then I also tell people that, you know, here in, in August and September and part of October, we may not be at the farmer's markets because we're chasing bigger shows because we've got to fatten up and before we go into hibernation in the wintertime. But uh, yeah, it's very, very seasonal and you got to, but you got to adapt. That should be the key to whatever cottage food people are doing, whether it be bakery or whatever. Well, and our customers are seasonal too in certain flavors. Like I've learned like strawberry lemonade sells super well at the beginning of the season and when it's hot. And I think it's because they see strawberry lemonade drinks all over at these shows and events. And then all of a sudden people start coming to you and they're, they're starting to look for like apple butter, cranberry. So, you know, we're rolling into that time of the season. It is very seasonal about what they're cooking as well. So you mentioned you've got this silo store on your property and that's super, super deep, unique. And you also, I saw have the silo trailer. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Can you talk a little bit about these? The silo store itself, it's a eight foot silo. Basically it's stood up on its feet and I cut the bottom off and then put it on a, oh, just a stand out there. It's heated and air conditioned. So it's big enough for one person to shop in it at a time. And we have all of our jams and jellies out there and, and they can come 24, seven, 365. The reason that we did the silo is that we were looking for a way, you know, cause our sales were getting enough where I, I was getting phone calls all the time that says, Hey, we want X, you know, can you bring it to me? Well, I'm not going to drive 35 miles to, to drop off two jars of jam. It's just not going to happen. So I needed a way to sell off season. So my wife and I got on Pinterest and we saw this uh, silo that had been made into like a, a building, you know, like that you can go and do a workshop kind of thing. And I went, oh, I can do that. So I found one in Arkansas and went down and picked it up, brought it up and cut it into pieces, put a door in it, put the heating and air conditioning, put some lights in it and stuff like that. And it's, it's honor pay. So the, the people just come up, they do their shopping and they leave the money in the, tr- I say, leave the money in the tree because the pay box, that's where the pay box is. I would say it's probably 10 to 15% of our sales, especially in the wintertime, summertime, not so much. They know how to find us, but that one worked really, really cool. And the other thing too, is that we haven't been able to identify any theft. And that was my biggest concern when you've got a couple thousand dollars worth of products sitting out front, you know, and, it, and it's, yes, it's on our property, but it's 60, 70 yards from the house. So it's, it's not like something where I can go, oh yeah, you know, I, I can see you and things like that. But we're, we're also seven miles from town. So it's not like we're in the middle, we're in the heart of town. And if they're going to drive out here, they're not going to steal from us. We're from San Diego. It would never work in San Diego. Trust me. It wouldn't, it wouldn't do that. But here it does seem to work. And the other thing too is we have some poverty in East Murray. Well, during COVID, when the kids got kicked out of school, I'm like, man, I can afford to drive in to go get homework and I can go in to go and, and data plans and all that kind of stuff for, for Wi-Fi. But these kids can't. So I actually, in the silo store, I put in Wi-Fi and I made it free for anybody that wanted to come and use it. So there were a couple mornings before early morning shifts, I'd look out and there'd be three cars parked out there and, and they were downloading homework. We also offered to print homework for any kid that needed it in the area. Just tell me what you needed and I'll print out, you know, we do thousands of labels. What's another couple sheets of paper, you know, for some kid to be able to do it. And when we did a post on that, it went viral. And when I mean viral, it's like 50,000 shares. And I spent three days of my life saying, sorry, I can't ship. I can't ship because it's not legal. You know, Australia, sorry, can't ship. You know, Ireland, I can't ship. 
but it's also spurred something here in the local community where churches went, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that too. And then there's about 15 locations where someone can go and download stuff and, and use free Wi-Fi here locally. And I know that sounds like a simple thing, like you get at Starbucks all the time, but, but you know, here locally, I think it was Wal- uh, McDonald's is the only one that had it. Anyway, we got known as the Wi-Fi silo jam and jelly people. So when you talk about our silo trailers, um, we have a single wide which is basically the top of a silo on top of a trailer. It kind of looks like a picnic table turned sideways and cut in half. And I, I sell from that in Paducah. And then it works so well because at farmer's markets, I don't have to set up a tent or a table or anything like that. It doesn't blow away. Exactly. So it, it, it goes that and it's very recognizable. So people know that we're, we're in an area. And then, so we did my wife a double wide. So she takes the, she takes the double wide down to Murray <laughs> and it goes over from there. So well, and mine has a silo on it as well, but then it also has a roof over it on the other half. So one half is the silo, one half is like covered. It leaks like nobody's business, so we don't. It's not waterproof. <laughs> it's not. So if we're in a rainstorm, it helps a little bit, but yeah. It was a unique marketing thing that we just said. Looking back, nah, let's not do the short route. Let's do something neat, and then we did the effort with that, and it's turned into now silo of one way or the other is going to be part of our business. I think forever just because it's just, it works so well. And Robert truly is the only one that had the vision on that because none of us could see it. He really, and he just kept staring out there in the middle of the snow going, I can see it, I can see it. And I kept thinking, what is he thinking? But he did a great job with it. It's so unique and recognizable. And I was going to say, if you ever redo your logo, you got to put a silo on your logo for sure. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So now I know you guys are looking ahead to the state fair coming up here soon. I, have you done it before? I mean, that's a huge event. No, we haven't. The state fair is an 11 day event and it's 12 hour days, most days, plus, you know, whatever time to restock and stuff. We're spending almost $2,500 to go because we have a double spot. So that's like $1,100 each plus electricity. It's, it's expensive. Don't get me wrong, but there's over half a million people that come by. So, you know, that's why we decided to do it. And, you know, numbers wise, you know, for some of the people that we've, that we've seen is that, yeah, it it costs, you know, two or $300 a day in expenses to be there, but you'll sell, you know, a thousand to 1500 to $2,000 worth of product every single day. We we were hoping we were going to have shipping by this point. We were hoping to be at that level, but we're hoping that when we finish coming from this event, that we won't be far from being able to ship. So that way we'll have a bigger market that we've reached. And one of the cool things is the guy, Marty, who's uh, in charge of the vendors and stuff there, he called me because uh, I was getting nervous. He goes, Robert, we just want to invite you to the state fair. He said, we really couldn't have it this year unless Whiskey Ridge was there. I laughed, of course. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm being serious. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vendors every year. And there were eight or 10 that were really, really excited about having here. And you're one of them. And, and he said, go ahead and pick your spot, whatever you want to do which was really cool because that acknowledged that he's had our product or heard about our product and that he likes the way we market with our silo trailers and our silo and the way we're trying to do and, and how we started from nothing, you know, 40 jars, you know, and cottage food. And here we are within weeks, hopefully to, to make the next step to become an actual processor where we can ship and do all that kind of stuff. So. Well, let's talk about that next step a little bit. I know you guys are in the process and have been in the process of building out a kitchen. But first, I wanted to just ask you, because I know you used to do pickled products, you used to do acidified foods. 
and you've stopped doing that, did you ever look into the microprocessor law in Kentucky? So I have spent dozens of hours on conference calls and stuff because what happened is we thought it was legal because we were seeing pickles at all the farmers markets all the time. We thought it was okay. And then the, the health department showed up and said, no, you guys, you, got, you can't do this. So we killed it right there. But here's the thing. We were told and the guy, like you said, says, oh, all you have to do is go and take a microprocessor class. I went, no, that's not my understanding. He said, no, here it is right here. And he showed me it. And this is my local health inspector guy. Okay. And I said, no, that's not what I did. So I got on the phone to the commercial food manufacturing. And then we conferenced in another guy that does the Eastern part. And then we called also and talked to the head of the Department of Ag. And what they said is, no, absolutely not. Pickled products, those acidified foods have to come out of a factory, basically a certified factory. So you can have tight controls on the things that are necessary to keep people safe and also that we can get it back if something goes sideways. Robert's actually called other facilities that are licensed, you know, like uh, commercial kitchens. And he'll say, can we rent the kitchen with your license? So, and they said, oh yeah, unless you're doing a pickle product. We're so close to being approved from a federal standpoint. I'm not kicking over in any trees anymore, but it's, it frustrates me to no end that the local health department versus the state health department versus the department of ag, they're on different pages. And being that we travel throughout the state, we also find that if I do sampling in Murray, it's got to be at a farmer's market. They won't let me do sampling anywhere else, not even with a food truck permit, which is what I have to get in some other counties. Other counties, I just need to tell them what I'm doing to sample my products, and that's okay with them, and they have no problem with that. If I go to a Louisville or Lexington, then I have to get inspected and have a three-compartment sink and all the things that go along with it. So it depends, and if you're considering doing cottage foods and things like that, you need to talk to the people, but you need to talk talk to the right people. And, and normally, in my experience, the local health people don't have the innate understanding of all of the laws necessary because, David, the pickles was half of our product line. Yeah. So we killed that in one day. And I actually sat here and looked at, uh, we made a thousand jars. Okay. A thousand jars is $4,000 worth of revenue. We had just made them. Well, they sat in my garage for a year. So, and, and you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but it's, it is what it is. So- Sorry, this is a passion for me. I get frustrated with it because every farmer's market we go to or show we go to, there is someone selling pickles. And I'm like, and they do not have licensing. I know they don't have licensing, but nobody does anything. And and we were told by the health department that, well, we don't work on the weekends. It's just interesting because I mean, I just rechecked the law. And, and as I had understood, you know, the law literally says, it spells it out and says you can do acidified foods, acid products, formulated acid products, you can do low acid foods even. Like it literally says that in the law. It's happened a number of times in different states where the ag department is opposed to the laws as they're written and will do things that are, you know, that that are basically illegal. I'm not doubting what you said. I if you've looked at the state law and, and you look at this in different states, that's fine, but I, I've gone to and died on this hill already. And, and at this point, we're already twenty-five dollars or $30,000 into this and, and within one electrician of getting it done. So I'm not going to rock any boats, that's for sure. They've also shut down other businesses that we know of in the local area. We know a lady who does teas and she has to do it at the federal level as well, where she has to track everything back. Here's the funny thing too. We have been told by the state of Kentucky home cottage food under the home processing license that we have that you can do teas. So here it is. Now we've got, once again, two different sides of the same same coin. 
the one thing though, David, we're talking about the nitty gritty with here, but I think that in general people, cause I help our home baker group in Kentucky a lot every day. I'm, I'm helping someone with something. Don't let what we're saying stop you from trying to build your business because look, you'll learn your business and you can spend, I, I, you know, we spent so much time planning our business, but it was a silo store with Wi-Fi in it that changed our whole direction. And now I'm making silos on the off season, you know, to tow behind a truck to sell jams and jelly. So you never, never know. Just do your best. Contact the state person that, that oversees this. Get the information when you can. Get it in writing so that if somebody disagrees with you, you can say, wait a minute, I, I got this piece of paper that says something different. You know, that keeps you out of trouble. And just go to work because you can't, you, you can't learn these kinds of cottage foods businesses without doing the legwork. You really, really can't. It, it's not a magical combination of, of pricing and ingredients and all that kind of stuff. You got to hoe the rope. You got to do the work. Otherwise, you won't learn what works and what doesn't work, despite your even the best planning. So let's talk about what you've learned with this kitchen build out. I know you've been working on it for a long time now. What are some of the things you've learned and the challenges you've faced? So one of the things is that we're, uh, we're in the east part of, of Murray, Kentucky, and we're on a well. Our water is perfect, but we have to meet federal water standards to a level that we could literally sell it to our neighbors. So we spent $1,000 on a water test, and um, we worked with the state. And I, look, the state is really nice. The people are really wonderful. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's just the way it's set up is just really weird. It took us 10 months to get our water approved after we had the test done. And it basically came back and he said, no, everything's perfect on your water. It's wonderful and great. All you got to do is chlorinate it. But um, that's one of the things where the sense of urgency is difficult. You submit something to the state and, and this goes into the nitty gritty part again, but you submit something and then they've got 120 days to respond. Well, I run a business, you know what I mean? I can't wait 120 days for you to tell me, you know, something. Or like in this case, their their payment processing thing didn't work for several weeks and then they lost my paperwork twice and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it goes from there. But the kitchen itself, like we've got the, you know, got all the plumbing done and the plans, all the plans have to be submitted through and approved for this through the state of Kentucky. Well, the plumber was willing to go to bat for us. And what did he say to us, Paula, here? He said it was actually out of, he's worked with them for, I think, 20 or 25 years. And he said it was the toughest plan he ever got through. He couldn't figure out why it took so long. And he answered more phone calls and more questions from the state than any other plan he's ever submitted. Our facility is a finished two-car garage. It's 550 square feet. We're not talking about some ginormous facility where I'm going to take on Smuckers or Hickory Farms or something like that. It's small, you know, but it's got to meet certain guidelines and, and you know, it's a little frustrating because what happened is like the plumber we got through, we got a guy that was willing to help us out. It still took four or five months. Oh, it took six months. We started in January and it got approved mid-June. And I'm sure other people will have better experiences than we do, but it was, it had not been fun. And then just the expense to it. When you go to a commercial level, everything's got to be stainless, you know, which is fine. We can do that. All the machines have to be right. Everything has to be on paper and written down. We had to survey our septic tank to make sure that it was a certain distance from the, from the water well, things like that. And then we have to have six sinks, a three compartment sink, a produce sink, a mop sink, and a hand-washing sink, all for that little bitty facility. So there's an entire wall that's just nothing but sinks. But, you know, that said, that'll allow us to go to another level and keep our business growing, which is what we want to do. And we like what we do. So, you know, despite we're bagging on stuff here, it's, it's not that big a deal. I actually never wanted to make another jar of cowboy candy because it, it smells, it's hot, 
Cowboy candy is uh, pickled jalapenos. Oh, yeah. Pickled jalapenos. They're candied jalapenos. And um, I can't wait to make cowboy candy. I haven't made it in a year and a half. It was my number one selling product when we had pickles. I just can't. Now, I can't wait to make it now. But I can remember the, like one of the last times I made it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to make this again. And now I'll do anything to make it. So when did you feel like you were ready to make that leap? Was it just once you knew you couldn't sell pickled items anymore? Or were you just ready to start trying to, you know, ship nationwide, et cetera, et cetera? We've always wanted to ship because, again, we could at the beginning. The first year that they had it, it was from from like July to December. And then they changed the law so that that January 1st, you can no longer ship. To clarify, that's shipping within the state of Kentucky. Yes. But now we can't ship at all, even within Kentucky. It's not allowed. So we've always wanted to go to that level. It was just one of those on the back burner because we thought we could do our pickles. Our business was growing. We were doing really well. And then when they said can't do any pickles, it was literally like it ground us to a halt. So we had to say, all right, we got to start working towards back to that because we want to get all of our pickle product back in our top 10 products that we sold that year. And at that time, I had made 18,000 jars. And this is I was still working part time originally or working full time and doing this. Or I made 18,000 jars. We sold 15,000 of them. I'd quit my job. I've been doing this full time. So I've been doing it for maybe less than a year. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. I quit my job to do this. How are we going to survive? And thankfully, we have been able to survive on jams, but we really want to get back to bringing all those products out that our customers know and love. I mean, we get asked all the time, where where are my spicy carrots? Where Where's our cowboy candy, our okra? You know, all of the, the things we used to make. Here in Kentucky also, we can only sell $60,000 worth of product and then we've got to go to the next level. Well, you know, if we talk about the percentages and stuff like that, that's for two of us working, you know, to live on $30,000 a year it'd be nice to go a little bit more than that. You know what I mean? And you've got to go to the extra step. And and here's the other thing too. I mean, aside from the financial part of it is there are lots of people that have ideas for a salsa or a seasoning or a barbecue sauce. And when you first start in this business, it's overwhelming. It just absolutely just, it's bone crushing. And what we'll be able to do now, once we got this, even if it's a little facility, I'll be able to go and my friend in Paducah that wants to do a barbecue sauce, who's a, who's a chef, he can come and he can pay me a hundred bucks for the day and he can go and he can make his stuff in here and, and I can, you know, certify it and make sure all the rules are followed and help him through that to help him build his business. Because I really think that's what the purpose of cottage food is. It's not for us to make a living or do a side hustle or to do oversight on grandma who's selling cookies at a PTA meeting. It's to help people get into a business that allows them to go to the next step so that the state of Kentucky or the state of California, or the state of Missouri can benefit from not only the reputation of that product, but also the tax revenue and, and the things associated to help the economy grow. I think that's what it's supposed to be for anyway. It's clear to me that you guys are just extremely service oriented, right? Do you feel like that is a requirement for running this kind of business? Not necessarily, no. I don't think you have to be service oriented. I think that's in our makeup as well. We are Christians, so I think we have that in us that we do want to help people. So I don't know if you have to be service oriented, but again, I think we are. I think my wife is being humble because she forgets some of the things with it. Like I got a call today. She loves our habanero jelly. I have one jar left and it's a four ounce jar. Okay. So what's my revenue on that? Maybe take home a buck. Okay. But she said, are you going to be at the market on Wednesday? And I said, yeah, I will. And she says, can you set that aside for me? So, you know, from a service aspect, Yes, that 100% is stuff that we have to do. And if you live that and not fake it, 
I think your customers know that and they'll keep coming back and they'll support you. Like even during COVID, our sales plummeted, but there were customers that still came out. They didn't need jelly, but they came out and bought it anyway because they knew they needed to support us. I mean, I've made jelly before. I know how much work it is. Paula, it sounds like you do the brunt of the actual processing of the food. I mean, I don't know. Does it ever get old? Like it's just, it's just so much effort to create jams and jellies and uh, you're clearly just making a ton of it. Sometimes there's some days that like I have to tell myself, cause it's easy if you're, if you're working from home to not get up off the couch, but that won't pay the electric bill. So there are days that I don't really enjoy it. You know, it's just, it turns into a job, but I will take doing this every day and twice on Sunday over going back to some of the jobs I've had in the past. And so I look at it that I feel very blessed that I do enjoy it, but you're right. When you get too much going on and it gets overwhelming, I find myself when I get too busy and I'm I'm making stuff that I don't get as creative. I lose that creative side of me. And so I end up just making what I can. And then other times, you know, when it slows a little bit or at the beginning of the season or near the end of the season is when I get my creativity back and then I get my excitement back and I look at recipes. And so, yeah, you're right. It can be a grind. Somebody actually um, sent me a text. A vendor sent me a text saying she said she had made jelly for the first time in her life and she would never do it again. And I said, yeah, I, under- I understand it is a lot of work, but there's something about it. I, I kind of joke about it. I dream about jelly sometimes. I dream about flavors and I don't know. It's just something I just really love. Considering the amount of effort it takes, is this a kind of business that you recommend to other people? Like if they're thinking about starting a jam or jelly business, like who's the right type of person to start a business like this? You have to have a passion for it. I really think that's number one. Robert asked me years ago, because I used to be bank manager. I was kind of a numbers person. And he said, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And I looked at him one day and I said, I'd love to make jam and jelly. And he said, you're kidding. And I said, I just love it. And so you have to have a passion for it. And so if you don't, I think you would get burnt out very quickly because it is a lot of work. And again, we've built up so that I can make several hundred jars in a day. Like my canner, my big canner that we, for the water bath, it holds 30 jars, you know, as opposed to where, you know, home canner maybe holds eight. So we've had to work up to that where we keep up with that kind of process. So if you don't have a passion for it, I don't think you'd enjoy it. I always tell my home baker people, I said, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And too many people get stuck in the, oh gosh, I need to have this, or I need to have this color on my labels. And I got to do, no, just make what you like, get out there and sell it. And then somebody will say something that'll trigger something. And then, you know, then you got a real business, but we did two years where we both had other work that we did before it got to the point that we could actually pay the electric bill by selling jams and jellies. It is definitely a, it's a grind. Mondays, we do things like this podcast, or I mean, you're our first podcast, but we do things, we, we chase fruit or we sit down and we do inventory and we, you know, make the deposit and all that kind of stuff. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're canning, or I'm out selling at a couple farmer's markets, whatever. Friday, we're usually labeling and we're loading the trucks and getting everything to drag the silo trailers to the market. Saturday afternoon, we sleep because we get up at 4 a.m. It's not easy to do. And then Sunday, basically, you know, after church, we're laying around petting the dogs. But it is a lifestyle because again, like I can at least four days a week, the height of the season, like I know right now this week, I'm going to have to start at seven or eight in the morning. Sometimes I start earlier and I'm going to be going until six or seven o'clock at night. Now, not every week will be like that, but a lot of the weeks right now will. Like last week, I kind of panicked a smidgen because I had 160 pounds of apples because I had to get some apple stuff done. So I made Robert stand in there and chop apples with me because I just, I had to get through it. But you have to have a passion for it. 
Yeah. And, and David, you know, for the people that are listening that, that are just kicking this around in their head, if you love doing something, whether it be baking or making candies or freeze dried fruits or, or, or jams or jellies, whatever it happens to be, if you have a passion for it, try it because, you know, like farmer's markets are kind of fun because it, there's a social aspect to it that you'd be able to go. Uh, you learn about and you see the look on people's faces when you come out with something new and someone absolutely just can't live without it. We had a customer, um, we were in Louisville, as a matter of fact, uh, we happened to come back for the second time for the New Year's show. And she's like, I'm so glad you came. And we're like, okay, we've only been here once, but okay. She's like, I was going to drive to Murray, Kentucky, four and a half hours away to come get some more of your habanero jelly because I love it so much. So when someone says something like that, or, you know, my daughter loves your date jam, it's wonderful. I shipped some to her, you know, here, and she just can't live without it. It keeps you going because there are times that you look at the checking account and you're going, oh man, you know, it rained this weekend and we made, you know, $600, $200 net. What are we going to do next week? You know, there are those times, but if you love it, get out there and try it, you know, do it and, and just do some research on the laws, get your licensing and see if it's something that fits. You know, you've gone down this commercial kitchen route, right? But what a lot of canners do is they go down the co-packer route. Like, I imagine you considered it. And what did you learn? I am a stickler about quality. And when it comes to a co-packer, I'm not a fan because I can't control what goes in. There, it's about cost. If they're using, let's say, a, a pure cane sugar to do the stuff that's made by ABC company, and they find they can get it for 10% less from XYZ company, they're going to switch, even though my recipe just says sugar. Well, that input could make a difference. That's not to say a co-packer couldn't follow your stuff exactly, but for the time and the expense and the energy, I would rather have the control here in my kitchen. And also, if I want to work till three o'clock in the morning, I can do it. It's, it's not about sales as much as it is the creativity too. Now, other things like barbecue sauces or seasonings or things like that, where it's more homogenous, I would probably be okay with that. But for my stuff, I want to be in control, if that makes sense. Well, you guys have obviously worked really hard to get to this point. You have a substantial business now, and it looks like you're right around the corner from being able to grow up much bigger. So what are your visions for the future and uh, where do you see yourself going? We do hope to grow this to where it is a business that is day in and day out. It would be lovely to someday be at a point where I do have a few employees. And uh, I, I know that my children do not want to own this business. So it's not something I'll be pa- I would be passing down to them. By, but I do hope it's a business that will continue, even if, uh, even if I'm long gone, you know, someday. I do hope it continues on and that it, we can keep it growing like that. We've been really blessed, and I mean that in the truest sense, just with everything that's come through. And I always joke that I'm, I'm going to take out Hickory Farms first, and then we're going to go after Smuckers. But uh, that's not really true. Uh, but it would be nice to be able to go, and uh, I'm a service kind of guy, so it'd be nice to be able to have enough money and resources to be able to, you know, anytime I wanted to sponsor a youth soccer team, I could do it. Or if the Rotary needs some money for, you know, do something like that, it'd be nice to be able to go and, and just write a check on that. Um, like she said, she was a branch manager. I was a stockbroker and mortgage broker. We've made real money in our lives, but there's something about when you make your own stuff and people really, really appreciate it, that the money is not as important as the experience. And especially as you get older, it's definitely worth it. And, and if you can make a good product, if you really make a good product and you believe in your product, you're going to do fine. 
Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, all that advice. And I'm looking forward to seeing where your business heads in the future. Now, if anybody wants to learn more about you, uh, where can they find you or how can they reach out? We're on uh, Facebook at Whiskey Ridge Farm. That's whiskey without the E. So that name was already taken. So we got whiskey without the E and also KentuckyFreshJam.com. The website is terrible. You can't order off it yet, but once we do, it'll be reworked and we'll go from there. But that gives you an idea of where we're going to be, where you can come see us. And if you have any questions or advice about cottage foods, you're more than welcome to private message me or uh, send us an email and I'd be happy to help as best we can. And we're also on Instagram under Whiskey Ridge Farm. Perfect. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and sharing with us today. Well, thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it very much. That wraps up another episode of the Forger podcast. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 95. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a quick moment right now and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It doesn't have to be a long review, but it's truly the best way to support this show and will help others like you find this podcast. And finally, if you're thinking about selling your own homemade food, check out my free mini course where I walk you through the steps you need to take to get a cottage food business off the ground. To get the course, go to cottagefoodcourse.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.